Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Prensky. Uh, I'm glad uh, to be here with you today. Good morning, afternoon, or night, wherever you are. I never know if it's a virtual presentation. Uh, my goal today is to help you with a number of things. Before I do that, let me add that if you want to interrupt me with a question and your mic is, is, has been configured, you may do that or you may send me a chat. Uh, if we get too distracted, I won't get through all the material, but I'll try to, uh, to deal with anybody who has a really important question uh, as we do. And hopefully there'll be time for questions at the end. And I will give you my email address at the end so you can always ask me questions by email. So what I want to do today, my goal is to help you think in new ways, see new perspectives, understand new contexts. And for those of you who have seen this before, which I assume is most of you, what I like about this is that it's not wrong. It's only wrong in a math context. So context is really very important. Uh, create innovations and encourage you to try new kinds of pedagogy which maybe you have or you haven't. Now, we are all, I assume, more or less, in some sense, educators, which for some of us means we're people in funny clothing, of course. But for most of us, uh, means other things. And some of us, it means we're pulling our hair out, really. It's a very tough time for educators, as we all know. And in thinking about that, I like to think about what our job is as educators, which could be to preserve the past, to cover the curriculum, get grades up, create good citizens, help our kids learn. Everybody uh, thinks that some of those are important. I think they're all important to a certain extent, but mostly what I think is that our need is to bring our kids into the future equipped with the skills that will allow them to function and thrive in the 21st century. And I hope you agree. If you disagree, you can comment. What I want to focus on today is a new concept that I've been thinking about and writing about. It's called digital wisdom. And it's the subject of my newest book, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, called Brain Gain, Technology, and the Quest for Digital Wisdom, which you can find on Amazon and in bookstores everywhere, as they say. Now, I'm going to try to use the concept of digital wisdom to help answer these kinds of questions. How can we get our students more engaged in their learning? What are the roles of the teacher and school leaders of the 21st century? What's the role of technology in learning? How do we move towards the future while preserving the good from the past? And of course, still teaching the current curriculum. How and what should we be teaching? What technologies should we or shouldn't we be investing in? And finally, and this is one of the keys in the book, in continuously making things shorter and faster and more technology-based, are we losing anything of importance? Are we gaining anything useful? And what are the trade-offs that we may need to make? So that's really what I like to think about these days in terms of digital wisdom and brain gain. I also want to highlight some important ideas and I want, on a practical level, to leave you with some simple actions with high leverage, some very practical things for classroom teachers to try. So let me highlight seven key ideas which have come up again and again in my thinking and writing. The first is adapting to a changing context, listening to the kids, understanding learning, changing pedagogy to partnering, using technology wisely, 
teaching the right stuff, as they say, and striving for digital wisdom. Starting with the context. This is very important. And in fact, you can raise your hand, although I don't really mean you have to actually do this with an illuminator or with collaborate. But think about it. If you think our education is perfect just as it is, please raise your hand. And I hope I don't see too many of them. So if we're not where we want or need to be in education, the real big question that I have is who's to blame? And everybody seems to be asking this. Some blame the teachers. I don't think it's their fault. They're trying mostly, te most teachers are trying as absolutely hard as they can. Administrators, ditto. There are some who may not be perfect, but administrators are really trying hard to keep up. Technology coordinators, I hope some of you are technology coordinators. It's certainly not your fault. You're trying hard. What about the students? A lot of people blame the students these days. It's not their fault. Obama tells them, you better graduate. You don't like being 16th. We better do this. I don't like blaming the students. I wouldn't like to be one. My friend Mark Bauerlein, with whom I debate frequently, calls them the dumbest generation. I think that's highly, highly insulting and also not true. And then, given everybody else, people turn to the parents. Well, I don't think it's the parents' fault at all. They're trying to do the very best they can for their kids. So who is to blame? No one. It's not anybody's fault. What's really causing most of our current problems is the new context in which we live and teach. And that's really important to realize. I'm writing an article, it's the context, stupid. We now live and teach in a world of volatility, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity. What a friend of mine who's a superintendent calls VUCA and accelerating change, accelerating at an enormous rate. And we are just starting to learn to deal with it. I like this picture of the church guy. Some are doing a better job, of course, than others. Today's educators have to be courageous and they have to be daring because this is frightening all this change. They need to feel the fear and do it anyway. And the nice part about that is it's the definition of courage. So educators today really and truly need to be courageous people because things are changing so quickly that even with all the technology or perhaps because of it, things that may have been great yesterday or that are even great today, like the software we're using, for example, and here's Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was certainly great one day, they grow old really quickly. Everything does. Software does. Hardware does. So we have to be prepared for this change. And whatever you think your concerns may be as an educator, and I'm sure there are many, and I'm sure they have to do with, with the environment, and I'm sure they have to do with the people and money and all this stuff, they pale, I assure you, in comparison with this changing context of education. And anyone who went into education because it was sky, steady, certain, ordered, unambiguous, which many people did in the past, are suddenly finding lots of buka, suddenly finding this volatility and uncertainty and chaos and ambiguity. 
And that can be off-putting, which is why we need the courage. And they're also finding, of course, the change. I've heard teachers say, I wish today's kids were like the ones we had 10 years ago. I have heard those words. Well, sorry, they're not ever going to be like them. They're going to change even faster. This is what's going on today, more or less at different places at different speeds. And we waste a lot of time these days, in my opinion, debating about things like digital natives and digital immigrants. Now, some of you may know that I invented those terms, or at least publicized them, uh, over 10 years ago, over a decade ago. Well, guess what, folks? We don't need to worry about exactly how our students may have changed. We don't know. There's debate. A lot of academics are starting to debate this. But digital natives versus digital immigrants, in my opinion, is over because the natives won. So it's not time to be debating. It's time to be getting used to this new world, the new context. The question is no longer should the kids use technology in education. And if anybody's asking that question, still they're, using the, they're asking the wrong question. It's not even how to teach kids to use technology for learning. Because they know a lot, they can use, they can learn from each other. We more or less know how to do a lot of that stuff. The real question, in my opinion, is how to use technology wisely. And that goes for educators, and that goes for students, and that goes for every single person. That's what I call digital wisdom. I have two books that talk about it. One is a set of essays called From Digital Natives to Digital Wisdom. And the second, for a more general audience, it's not advancing here for some reason. Okay, I think I put you in the wrong place. I'll, I'll uh, let me get you to the right place. Okay, hang on the second. There we go. The second is Brain Game, the quest for digital wisdom. Because it's a quest. We don't have the answers of what means digital wisdom. But I'll talk about what it is technology and the quest for digital wisdom. So our job today is to work in the new digital context and help our colleagues, of course, to do so. Because my guess is that if you're on this call, you're already in the choir and converted. And so the real job is to help everybody else to cultivate digital wisdom. And what does that mean? Well, it's extremely important. It means how do we use our technology in a wise way, because there are lots of ways to use the technology that are not so wise. Same issue with advancing. Let's see if I can go tonight. Whoops. I've got to stop here. Maybe it's my... Mark, is it not advancing for you? Now it is. It just... Okay, it just stopped advancing. Um, I'm not sure exactly why this, this happens. But cultivating digital wisdom going on is extremely important. How do we use our technology in a wise way is what we really should be focusing on and talking about with each other and with our students. Because we are now a human-machine society. And that's what we need to get used to. And those who think only human is better, 
are not living in the present. So how do we make the best human-machine society? The reason the latest digital tools are required for all our students is because wisdom has changed. In the 21st century, wisdom is combining those things that our brains do well, and I'll talk about those in a second, with things that machines do far better than brains and doing it in the best possible way. The kids already know this. When they say, my phone is my third hand, that's what they're talking about. When they say, if I lose my cell phone, I lose half my brain, that's what they're talking about. When they say, in olden days, and this was a 10-year-old, you had to memorize phone numbers, that's what they're talking about. What we're striving for in education and in life is digital wisdom, and not just digital cleverness or digital stupidity, not just having kids do little green screen exercises because we can, but actually creating things that have value and meaning in the world for them, for their learning. That is really important. Digital cleverness. I distinguish two kinds of that. Some of it is benign. It might even be useful, like some of the gadgets and robots and cameras and, and a lot of the Me Too apps, even the iPad in many cases, adding fonts, stuff in our cars, software apps. A lot of that stuff is clever, but not wise. And then there's cleverness that's really dangerous, like those people who very cleverly put together scams and malware and hacking and phishing and type of squatting and trading and pricing and stuff like that that we don't need. Then there's the stupidity. And there's tons of kinds of this. Forgetting to back up. You know, hitting send when you don't mean to. These are all a list of things that I have done that are perhaps benign and perhaps excusable, but they're pretty stupid in this day and age. And this is not just for kids, it's for adults. But dangerous digital stupidity are not checking emergency equipment like those phones that didn't work at 9-11, not investing in technology when it really helps, not staying flexible so that you get caught in the past, and importantly, overly relying on the past as a guide. That used to work. This used to be the best way to do it. It used to be good for the kids to memorize the multiplication tables. We still have to do it. We really need to rethink those things. Because the central problem of education, really the central problem perhaps, from what and the difference from what we had in the past is this issue of outsourcing. What do we keep in our heads and what do we delegate to our machines? You had to do this before machines came out. You had to memorize phone numbers. A young lady said that I stopped having to learn to multiply when my phone could do it. And that's an important question for us to think about. When is that important and when is it not? I'm not having answers here, but it's very important that we always ask the question. In my book, uh, we're finding digital wisdom in a number of areas, overcoming deficiencies, improving communications, physical, relations with other people, making the world a better place, deepening analyses, new and useful insights, decision-making, creativity, 
environment and new and wiser things. Those are all examples that I give in the book of where we are becoming digitally wiser already. And these are places where we need digital wisdom. In our personal life, there are many places. Communications, phones, health, money. And in work, we need digital wisdom in many places. In fact, in all the places that we, as humans, work. Now, of course, there are some risks. And I delineate these as well in the book of being manipulated or side effects that we miss or biases or forgetting the past or getting the division wrong or letting certain capabilities atrophy that some people worry about. Uh, using ourselves to death is good old Neil Postman, who's a smart guy. Uh, some people worry about becoming less human. I think that the technology is making us more human because it gives us all these capabilities we didn't have before. Annihilation, of course, technology has that possibility, and some people are worried about machines taking us over. Well, those are all things that we could worry about, but I don't think we should, because I think we need to focus on the positive, and the positive is so intense and so immense and so valuable that we really need to make sure that we as parents, as educators, as human beings, put the right focus on the positive and don't over-focus on the negative, which often happens. Okay, so let's talk about digital wisdom in education. There are lots of places that I think that we can do in terms of teaching digital wisdom. These are some ideas that are from the book. I'm not going to go into them since they're in small type. But it requires, as I just said, that we don't just focus on the negatives. If, if technology education becomes this site is bad or unreliable or Wikipedia has got some problems, then we are doing our kids a huge disservice compared to the fact that you can get an answer to almost anything on Wikipedia, and you can, of course, check it. Or there are most sites don't have problems, and here's the way to find a few that are, and here's a few examples, and find a few so you know how to check them. But really, let's think about all the advantages that this technology is bringing us. It also requires, that is digital wisdom, that we look for new educational ideas. We're already seeing these, flipping the classroom, as you all know, recording the session so that the in-person session can be interactive. Peer-to-peer -peer is probably the most underutilized technology in the world in education because those who know are so capable of teaching those who know less. And games has been increasing for a long time as a potential for education. I wrote about this over a decade ago, and just now we're starting to see games get more and more traction in education. We now have Constance Steinkuhler in the federal government office of the president trying to push a national conversation about this. And this is all really good. But I think what's important is that we think about all of these things as basically arrows in a quiver that they are things that we can use, whether it's games or any of these tools, and we don't need to use all of them all the time. What's happening is we're getting a hugely more full quiver. 
And so we need to learn to distinguish when various tools and techniques are useful, and we need to collaborate with our students in order to do that. But we must never, I believe, use the technology for the students. I think that's the student's job to use it. We need to know how it's used, why it's used especially, but it's not our job to use it for them. We have to get it into their hands. Every time the teacher stands up and does something, even if it's go to a website, I think that's taking education away from the kids. And very importantly, we all have to stay ready and flexible enough to move to these new tools as they appear. Now, I just skipped a whole lot of things here. So I'm going back. Forgive me. Oh, this is a lot of important stuff here. Let's see. Okay, here we are. Good. So, those of you who have, or whose colleagues have, electronic whiteboards, I don't think they're really for the teacher. The teachers use them in for the main, and this is not true for everybody, in the main they become a new blackboard. Yes, you can show some, some nicer things, you can go to use the whole web for your graphics, but it's far better for the students to let them be doing the work. And those people who have figured that out are getting hugely more out of these interactive boards than the people who just use them as a stand-up teaching aid, no matter what they do with them. It also involves, in my opinion, looking to the future. So for the price of five, I've said this for a long time, of these interactive boards, you can buy a 3D printer. And then your students can be making things that really illustrate what's in their imagination. And those prices have come way down for 3D printers. And, and some of the companies that provide even the boards, I've told them or suggested for many years that they start selling these printers and they're doing it. That's something that's really important that the kids can use that I think really will spark their imagination and interest. Now, it also requires that we teach the right stuff. And here's what I mean by that. When I went to school more than 50 years ago now, amazing, I learned three things. I learned to write a good letter, to write a good report, and to write a good essay. And I practiced those at every subject, and I got fairly good at them. And today, I can do those things well. Well, if you're getting out of school today and going into the workplace, you probably wouldn't need to do any of those. What you would need is to be able to write a good email, to make a good PowerPoint, to write a good blog post, which are the modern versions of those same things. So what do we do? We teach some of those skills in school if we're lucky. And that's very nice, and we should. But that is not really preparing our kids for the future. That's preparing our kids for today, which we should do. But for tomorrow, what are the kids going to be doing? I think we can say with a lot of certainty now, they're going to be working in virtual communities of one sort or another. They're going to be communicating through video. And they're going to be writing programs to make the fancy technology of their day do what they want it to do. 
And those are things that we really don't focus enough on, working in virtual communities, teaching the right etiquette, teaching how you do it, what would we want to have, making video on both sides of the camera, being the person taking the video, being the person in the video, both require a lot of skills. And finally, programming. And programming I've talked about in many other contexts. It's one of the biggest things that we need that we don't teach today. We have issues because who's going to teach it? But so much of it can be taught online. So much of it can be taught through experts. And we can all set up common examples that it's really, it's really a crime almost not to be teaching that. Another thing that digital wisdom requires is that we learn more about learning. We don't know. We've been doing this for thousands of years, and we still don't know enough about how people learn, especially young people. And so what we've been doing, and I have a great video here, but I don't think it played, so I took it out. We jump from fad to fad, whether it's peer coaching or this or the next thing or the next thing. We have other ways that people learn. And the biggest fad today is brain-based learning. And some of you may be very into that and concerned about that. And, and that's fine, except that despite all that hype, neuroscience is not really helping us. And this is a controversial kind of statement that I'm going to make, but I think it is absolutely true. Not because they're not trying, not because they're not looking, and not because they haven't already found out a lot of things, the neuroscientists. They're very clever, smart people. The reason this is not so helpful is because we're still so early in the process. We don't know enough about the brain to make conclusions that say, if we do this, this will definitely happen, other than the things that we already know behaviorally. Because we don't really know how the brain works. And if anybody tells you different, they are not telling you the truth. What we do know is a lot about how neurons work. Absolutely. Dendrite growth, chemicals, plasticity, although we don't know all its implications. What various regions of the brain do, although we know them in a mostly isolated way. We have all these pretty pictures of fMRI, but that's very, 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 very primitive, and any neuroscientist will tell you. What we don't know, and this is so key, we don't know really how the groups of neurons work together. We don't know exactly how the brain is connected. We're just starting to figure out the connectome, how our memories are stored, exactly what working memory is. There's great debates on how big it is and, and et cetera. We don't even know exactly what it is, what electrical microfields. The brain is really a, an electrical device it generates these fields. We don't know much about them. We certainly don't know how our thoughts are formed. And we know very little, except behaviorally, about how learning happens. And sadly, I see people putting far too much faith and effort into these so-called neuroscience-based solutions and too little emphasis on what's really going on in enhancing us which is so important, which is that our brain is being incredibly enhanced externally by all these new technologies that are coming. That's what's really going on, and that's what my book is about. It's a symbiosis of the human brain and the external technologies 
put together in a wise way that really is causing brain gain. And we get brain gain by overcoming the deficiencies in coming, improving our communication. I talked about these before. You can read them and you can, of course, get these slides. I'll send you an, a, uh, I'll give you an address at the end. And these are things that we can do. I'm not going to read them all, that we couldn't do before we had technology, today's technology. So this is, these are all the kinds of things, and this is just a small list, of things that we can do. And remember, the last one here is educate people better, which I certainly hope we can do. Now, digital wisdom also requires, though, that we focus not just on technology, but really on learning. And anyone who knows me knows that I am a strong technology proponent. I believe the digital tools are required for our students. I believe that they require them in order to achieve intellectual proficiency in a digital world. And I believe, with my friend Stephen Heppel, that every turned-off device is a turned-off kid. So I don't see reasons to deny kids technology. In fact, I think that every day our kids have to wait to use the 21st century tools all the time is another day we just deny them their birthright as citizens of the early 21st century. That's what we do. Nobody denies us the opportunity to use these tools as adults. And in fact, they encourage us. Used to be that you got into an isolation booth on a quiz show. Now you're encouraged to ask the audience to phone a friend. Things have changed, and wisdom has changed. I even believe that not having technology harms, literally does harm to the kids. It harms their ability to function in the 21st century. But still, I am more concerned about education and learning than I am about technology. And I believe you should be too. I think that we can overfocus on technology and underfocus on the learning and education that it helps provide. In fact, just introducing technology, as important as it is to do that, is not so great because if every if we gave every kid an iPad and every kid an iPhone, suppose we could afford to do that. Suppose it suddenly rained like raining meatballs, it rained iPads and iPhones we would still leave our schools and the education of our kids stuck in the past unless we change how we teach and what we teach. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Now I'm having the advanced problem again, so I'll just wait a second. Something is, something is going into memory here. Because this was a long presentation, we had to break it up. Okay, change that and change that in each of our classrooms. This really, education has to change at a classroom by classroom level. In fact, it has to change at a student by student level, but right now we're, at, we're organized into classrooms. The problem with how we teach is that it ignores the kids. We often focus so hard on the curriculum and on the testing that what we get are cellophane kids. That's their term. We just look through them. 
The problem with what we teach is it ignores the kid's future. So those are the two huge problems. We need to put much more emphasis on what they need for the future than on what they needed in the past. And I'm writing a new book called Zero-Based Curriculum. Let's take everything off the table. And what do we need to put back on for the future? Not what did we used to need that people still love. It requires that we put much more emphasis on how, sorry about the two hows there, it's so easy to avoid that, how humans and machines learn together. And we place more emphasis on how people learn as individual people and not just in classrooms. The problem that we have with classrooms, the reason why that's now holding us back, is that we focus on how to teach in classrooms and that doesn't necessarily reach each individual the right way. The old wisdom is you leave a third behind, you got a third ahead, you're teaching a third in the middle. That's not acceptable anymore. So how can we make these changes we need? One piece of digital wisdom that I'm going to give you as a little perspective is to think of verbs and nouns. And some of you may have heard this before. If you haven't, it's in my book, Teaching Digital Natives. What I mean is that we typically think, as you look on the right of this, when we're talking about things that I should use, whether it's PowerPoint, whether it's iPhones, whether it's Wikipedia, those are nouns or tools. Now this slide was meant to be a real build, so it's not going to work the way I wanted it to. But what I mean is that we focus on the nouns or the tools, but they're tools to do something. So PowerPoint is a tool for presenting. And other things are tools like Twitter or email, tools for communicating. And other things like Wikipedia are tools for learning. What's important is that the verbs stay the same. They, they are not changing. A few more might be added, but mostly we want those. We've always wanted our kids to learn presenting, communicating, learning. But now the nouns are changing. So PowerPoint changes to Flash or HTML5 or Prezi. And communicating changes to Twitter and to texting. And learning changes from Wikipedia perhaps to YouTube, which is now a huge learning source. So what's really important to think about is that the verbs stay the same. Thinking critically, presenting logically, communicating, creating emotion, etc. There are lots of those verbs, and they depend very much on what you're teaching. But the kids need to know that that's what they need to focus on. The nouns that we use for this change, and we have watched them change, and we're still watching them change very, very much, and that's going to continue at an ever faster rate. So to do the best job as educators and teachers, we need to ask, what are the key verbs or skills that we want our students to learn, practice, and master. And then we need to ask, am I using the most appropriate, the best, the latest nouns for those verbs or skills that I am teaching? And we have to try to keep as up-to-date as we can within the confines, of course, of our budgets. Most importantly, we need to stay ready and flexible enough to move to new nouns as they appear. 
Now, we used to have one noun, essentially, or two, I guess. One was the lecture and the other was the book. Those were two nouns that are now becoming outmoded. They are changing. So we need to be flexible to move to new nouns in those areas. Not that the old ones don't always work, don't sometimes work, but they don't always work. So what's the digitally wise technology, the role of technology in the 21st century classroom? I believe it's to support this partnering pedagogy that I talk about in my book, Teaching Digital Natives, which is students teaching themselves with the coaching and guidance of teachers. And it's also to partner symbiotically with the students' own brains and minds in order to achieve brain gain and digital wisdom. And that's the goals that we're really after with our students. It doesn't support the old pedagogy. If you're lecturing and telling, doing direct instruction, you can only use technology in minimal ways, like pictures and videos. That's not really what technology does at its most powerful. So we have to change the pedagogy to partnering and then let the students use the technology to take off. If a teacher is not digitally wise and they're still lecturing or telling, they can even get hindered in their teaching. They'll find it takes too much time. They'll find it doesn't add value. They'll tell you all the things that I'm sure you've heard. But that's because they're teaching the old pedagogy. So digital wisdom is needed in how teachers use technology tools. And as students have said in the past, teachers may think they make a PowerPoint and they're so awesome, but it's just like writing on the blackboard. That's not a good way for teachers, a digitally wise way for teachers to be using technology. And so I have an apostasy, which you may have heard before. I don't think it's worth teachers wasting their time learning to create with all these new tools unless they really want to. Because the students can do it even better if they want to. What the teachers need to know is what the tools do, what's an appropriate tool to suggest for a particular verb, a particular kind of learning, and to help and know who in the class is the best at using it and who can teach their peers, etc. And all the teachers I know who have used technology wisely have student technology partners that they rely on to do this stuff and don't try to learn it all themselves. In fact, the kids say this. Don't try to keep up with the technology. You can't, which is true. But worse, you'll only look stupid. So it's so important to enlist the kids' help and that we work together as partners, which is the digitally wise way. Now, I wish we had time for some of these other ideas, listening and, and uh, other things and, that I don't really have time for. But we, you can ask me any questions that you want. Um, and I'm going to go through quickly some simple things with high leverage. One thing, imagination. If you don't have technology, it's nobody's going to ever have everything. The most important thing is to say, what would we do differently if we did? For example, nobody's going to have a supercomputer. But suppose we had access to the supercomputer for this lesson. What could we use it for? That's a very interesting question to ask. Suppose every single one of us had an iPad or an iPhone or whatever we don't have. What would we do differently? If we figure those things out and we write them down and we collect them in databases, 
that will be more valuable than actually using the technology. Video is so important. I think video is the single piece of technology that is most important for every class to have. More important than a computer even, although you should have a computer with it. Why? Because that is the way we communicate now and it is the way we learn. And I bet every single one of you has gone to YouTube or gone to some other site to learn how to do something at some point. If it's not there, it's our job to add it. So we need to be good, both teachers and students, at making videos, short videos, one or two minute videos, about things that are important to share. Flipping, we know about. Making sure that we use the devices students already have. I've had teachers say to me, I can't use their cell phones because only half of them have them. And my response is, wait a second, you've just told me that 100% of pairs of students in your class have a cell phone. So go right ahead and use them in that way. We've got to share. We've got to let the students find the videos. Teachers will spend hours and hours looking for videos and then they'll complain that it's blocked. Well, the better way is to say, okay, we need videos for tomorrow on whatever it is, division of fractions. Would everybody please go and find the best one? And then you'll get lots of submissions. And then you can use them. And if they're blocked, we all know that the students are very good at avoiding that. But more and more, the tech administrators that I talk to say, if you need something unblocked, just let us know. And if it has any educational value, we will unblock it. We're not good at sharing. We should take everything that works and make a one or two minute video of it and put it on YouTube. And we should be making ourselves do one of these a week, maybe even one of these a day. Real connections with real people outside. RSS, this is hugely underutilized. Even if you have one working computer and it's old in the corner of a classroom, what that should be doing is bringing you in via RSS information relative to whatever it is that you're studying. And I recommend that a student every single day, a different student, be appointed the RSS monitor whose job it is to stay on that computer, look at this incoming information, decide what's valuable to share and how to share it. There are concentration tools, if that's an issue, that are based on technology. And there's lots of polling that we can do now, not just with clickers, but with cell phones, with polleverywhere.com, and all of these uh, new ways to do this. So all of those are not hard to do. They're not expensive to do. In fact, most of them cost nothing. But they really, really increase your leverage as a teacher. Now, there are even things that you don't even need any technology to do to increase your leverage. Mutual respect. Not telling the kids to turn off their devices and do something useful. Knowing the passion of every single one of your students, which I think is the, the most important thing 